All right, this morning we're going to be in two places. We'll be in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, uh, which is the next to last book in your Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, go back just a few pages. You'll find Zechariah there. So we'll be in Zechariah chapter number 9 and verse 9. And then we will also be in the Gospel of Mark chapter number 11. So we'll be in Zechariah 9. That's where we'll be starting. And then we'll be going to the book of Mark for the remainder of the message. This morning is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday before the resurrection. This is the day that marks the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Uh, this is the day when Christ was recognized and lauded as king here during his earthly ministry. Some 450 years prior to Palm Sunday, the first Palm Sunday, some 450 years prior to that event, the prophet Zechariah had predicted that this day would come. And in predicting that this day would come, he gave us a clear indicator, a check mark, a box we could check uh, that would show us that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He gave us a prophecy uh, that Palm Sunday fulfilled uh, which let us know without a doubt that Jesus was indeed uh, the Messiah. Now it's interesting to note that this is one prophecy that was fulfilled. When we look in the Old Testament and then compare it to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, you will find that there were 333 old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. But as we come here to the end of his earthly ministry, just five days before his crucifixion, we come to Palm Sunday. The day when he rode in to Jerusalem, the people recognized him as king and the prophecy of his presentation was fulfilled. The account of Christ's triumphal entry is found in all four of the Gospels. Whenever you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, you will find that some events all of them cover, some events only one or two, or maybe three of them cover. But when we look at this triumphal entry, we find that all four Gospels speak of the triumphal entry. But this morning... I want us to compare the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 with the record that Mark gives in his gospel and just look this morning briefly at the triumphal entry of Christ. So look with me in Zechariah chapter number 9. Zechariah chapter number 9 and in verse number 9 the Bible says, Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord, many years ago, when you rode into Jerusalem. And Father, it was without question a fulfillment of the prophecy that, Lord, you were the Messiah. 
Father, I thank you, Lord, that it was made clear, Father, just shortly before your crucifixion, Lord, that you were the rightful king. But, Father, not only were you the king, they were to find out a few days later that you were also the spotless lamb. And, Father, I thank you for it. I pray, dear Lord, as we take a few moments and look at this passage of Scripture, uh, Father, Lord, that you will instruct us, uh, Lord, that you will challenge our hearts, uh, and, Father, Lord, that you will prepare us, uh, Lord, as we enter in, uh, Lord, to this uh, Passion Week, this Passover week, Lord, leading up to your resurrection. Father, I pray that you'll be with us. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be in your house. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now hold your place there in Zechariah and turn over to Mark chapter number 11. Now we'll be looking at roughly the first 10 verses here in the book of Mark. And there's several elements here that we see in Mark chapter number 11 uh, that reveal Jesus as the Messiah, the Creator, the Savior of the world. The first thing that we see when we get to Mark chapter number 11 is in verses 1 down through verse number 6. And boy, I'm telling you what, just an interesting thing that we find here. We find a ready coat a ready colt, a picture of divine provision. A picture of divine provision. In verse number 1 of Mark chapter number 11, it says, And when they came nigh to Jerusalem, this is Jesus and his disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem from Bethany. They came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. He sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man set. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye, loosing the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. Now the passage that we just read in the book of Zechariah, we see that Zechariah had prophesied that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem riding a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here in Mark chapter number 11, we see that when the time had come for Christ to make his royal entry, a colt had been provided. Now boy, I'm telling you what, there is a lot of things that I would like to say about this colt, but we're just going to make one application this morning, and that is the divine provision of the cult. And boy, I just don't know if I can even explain to you all the thoughts that are in my mind about this divine provision. You see, 450 years prior, Zechariah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, wrote the words that the Messiah would come riding into Jerusalem, not just on a donkey, but he would come riding into Jerusalem on a the cult, the full of a donkey. In other words, a colt that had never been ridden, an unbroken colt, and this is what Jesus would ride into Jerusalem. Zechariah penned these words. Zechariah not fully understanding everything that was meant, but following the direction of God as he penned the words, he wrote down that this would be an indicator. This would be a way that we would know that this was the Messiah. We find out when we look in the passage that the disciples were familiar with Zechariah's prophecy, but they were had not thought about it at the time that they were getting the donkey. It was not until after 
after Jesus had made his triumphal entry that the disciples remembered the prophecy and they're like, oh my goodness, we just fulfilled Zechariah's prophecy. But we see that Zechariah wrote this down, that there would be an unbroke colt that Jesus, the Messiah, would ride into Jerusalem. Now we jump ahead several centuries. Jesus is traveling into Jerusalem. No one except Jesus is aware that this is the time for him to fulfill this prophecy. No one but Jesus is aware that this is the time that he is going to make himself known. Nobody else knows. They are on their way into Jerusalem. And Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to go over to Bethphage. Bethphage was a town that was just a little bit off the beaten path. He said, I want you to go over to Bethphage. And when you get there, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find a donkey and her colt. I want you to loose them and bring them to me. And if anybody asks you why you're getting them and bringing them to me, I want you to tell them that the Lord hath need of them. Now, but like I say, there is so much here. There, there's just so much here. So the disciples, first of all, didn't argue. No, no argument, just, okay, we'll go borrow the donkey. How, they, how Jesus knew the donkey was there, they didn't know. How that Jesus knew the owner would let them bring him, they didn't know. All they knew was that the Lord needed the donkey, so they went to go get the donkey. You know what? It would do us well if we would just learn to obey the Lord like that. But anyway, they go over to Bethphage, and they get to Bethphage, and sure enough, just as Jesus had spoken, here is a donkey tied to the fence with his mother. The disciples walk up, and they begin untying the donkey. They're going to bring them back to Jesus. And as they're untying them, of course, the owner, a natural response says, hey fellas, hey, hey, hey fellas, what y'all doing with my donkey? And they said, the Lord hath need of him. And the Bible says, he let them go. Okay. He let them go. Now what do, we, what do we see here? I believe we see here that at the proper time, at the proper place, when it was needed and where it was needed, God provided what was needed. When Zechariah wrote the words down, God already knew that this donkey was going to be born. When Zechariah penned the words, God already knew uh, that the donkey was going to be there, that it was going to be available. God had already made provision at the proper time, at the proper place, when it was needed and where it was needed. God had provided the need. This young donkey had no idea of its purpose. Now, I've never been in inside of a donkey's mind. I'm not sure what they think about, uh, but I have to imagine they don't have real high aspirations. Uh, now, if you've watched the Christmas show, uh, I've, what's the name of that? The Star, the Christmas show, The Star, it's a kid's Christmas show. Now, that donkey, he had some big aspirations. Uh, but uh, anyway, you know, whenever you get in the head of a donkey, uh, they just know that they're going to be a beast of burden. They're either going to pull carts, uh, they're going to carry baskets, uh, they're going to be a beast of burden. Uh, they don't have any real big jobs. And with this young donkey was born and whenever he was growing up he had no idea what his purpose was but this donkey had been selected by the creator of the world since time began that he would be the donkey that would carry the savior into Jerusalem this young donkey though he had no idea of his purpose and by all indications that we have in scriptures his owners were not aware of his
his purpose. His owners were not aware what he was going to be used for. They probably had some ideas of themselves. Maybe he was a good-looking donkey. He was a strong donkey. They had some ideas, some places they could use him. Maybe they thought they could sell him. They had no idea what his purpose was, but God knew what his purpose was. And when the time came, when the time was right, God arranged for the colt to be born at the correct time, to be tied in the correct place, to be owned by the correct people, so that when the Lord had need of him, he was available. Divine provision in the donkey. You know what? Whenever I think of our lives, we're always trying to figure everything out, aren't we? We're trying to figure out every detail. But it really wasn't necessary for anybody to know the details until the Lord had need of him. And then everything became clear. Divine provision. We see that God made the donkey available. You and I need never underestimate the Lord's ability to work out the details. But not only do we see this ready coat, but I also look this morning in this passage of Scripture and I see a royal celebration. A royal celebration. This is deserved praise. Jesus has been doing earthly ministry for three years now. People have watched him, people have observed him, people have followed him, people have questioned him, people have doubted him, people have wondered who he was, people have questioned his doctrine, his philosophy. He's got some followers. He's had followers who have left him. The Pharisees and the religious people utterly hate him. It's been three years that he's been doing ministry. He is well known now. And it's come time for him to enter Jerusalem. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, word had spread that he was going to arrive. Now a lot of people knew of Jesus. We know that he had fed 5,000 people and then again he had fed 4,000 people. We know that he had taught many thousands of people. We know that many, many people had been healed and had seen the works that he could do and so many people had heard of him and so when word spread that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem during Passover week and of course during Passover week Jerusalem would have been packed with multitudes of people. There would have been thousands thousands and thousands of people uh, there in Jerusalem and word spread that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Uh, they decided that they wanted to see him. Once again, uh, I see individuals uh, doing what God had arranged for them to do. Uh, God had already arranged that he would be greeted uh, with people uh, and these people began to throng. They wanted to see Jesus uh, uh, come in and as he entered Jerusalem, the people lined the streets to see him to celebrate him, to watch him as he entered Jerusalem. In that crowd that lined the streets, some were there out of curiosity. They had heard of this man and they just wanted to see him. Others were there because they believed in him. Others were there because they doubted him. For whatever reason, the streets were lined with people and they were watching as Jesus entered and as he entered, they began to lift their voices in well-deserved praise for the King of kings 
as he entered the city. Look in verse 7, down through verse number 10 of Mark 11. It says, and they brought, this is the disciples, they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. Just a little nugget for you here. This again goes to show that he is the ruler of everything. A donkey that's never been ridden before normally doesn't comply. But when the creator of heaven and earth saddles up, it says, yes, sir. We see that they set him on the donkey. And it says, and many spread their garments in the way. And others cut down branches off of trees. The book of John tells us that these were palm branches where we get the name Palm Sunday. They cut down branches off of the trees and strolled them in the way. They that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They began to cut the branches down. They began to lay the garments down. They began to praise Hosanna in the highest. If you look at this uh, this thing of putting garments down before him, this was something that was done for royalty. This is something that was a way of the common people taking their coats off and laying them down so that the royalty would be able to stay clean and stay out of the mud. They were recognizing Jesus as royalty. They were praising him as the king of kings. He was deserving of his praise. Zechariah had said that the children would rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And the people are rejoicing because the king is come. It was deserved praise. He deserved the praise that they were given him. And let me just interject right here this morning that the king is always worthy of our praise. The king is always worthy of our praise. The trouble is, many who were waving the branches in the air and shouting Hosanna were praising the king for the wrong reason. You see, their focus, their heart, their desire was on their own physical, temporal, material desires. The Jews wanted a king who would deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. They had looked at the Old Testament. They had seen the prophecies that a Messiah was coming. And although the entire Old Testament had been written, teaching them about the blood sacrifice, teaching them about washing away sin, teaching them about their condemnation, the whole Old Testament had been written, drawing a picture that a Messiah was coming who would deliver them from sin because of their focus on their physical and material needs and their physical and material wants. They missed what the Bible was telling them. They missed what the prophets were saying and they decided that this Messiah was coming to deliver them from Roman oppression. And as the king rode in on the donkey, they recognized this is the one we've been told about. And they began to praise him, Hosanna, Hosanna, this is the king. But as they lifted their arms in praise, they were praising him for what they were hoping he would do. 
Jesus wasn't coming into Jerusalem to overthrow the Roman government. You know, isn't it interesting how we so often get focused on temporal, material things. And our desire that we express to the God of all creation is that He will intervene in temporal, material things. Do you know how many governments have came and went while He's been in authority? You know how much corruption has been in place? You know how many kingdoms have risen and fallen while God has been watching? These are temporal, material things that are the result of mankind and the way that they live and the decisions that they make. But yet, it seems that our focus always gets turned to the physical, to the temporal, to the material, and we begin to seek God. Will you help us in these material things? And many times God in His love and in His mercy and His compassion will bless us with material things. But that's not His focus. That's not why He came. That's not the deliverance He is offering. The deliverance He is offering is far greater than anything material or temporal. He is bringing something far greater. Jesus was riding into Jerusalem that day not to overthrow the Roman government. Had He overthrown the Roman government, another corrupt government would have risen. Life would have continued. Life cycles would have continued. It would have been a temporary thing. He wasn't coming to do something temporary. He was coming to do something eternal. He was coming to provide deliverance from sin. But these people lining the streets, Hosanna, yes, he deserved the praise and he always deserves the praise. But they were praising him for what they wanted. Five days Five days later, the same multitude, the same multitude, Pilate said, what will I do with Jesus? And the same multitude said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. You know what, there's many times that people get interested in religion because they've heard that if you believe in Jesus, all these blessings are going to come your way. And so they get interested. Who's not interested in free blessings? All my troubles will go away. All my problems will go away. I'll be guaranteed a home in heaven. Life will just be full of bliss. First off, you've got wrong information. People hear these things about religion and they get interested in religion and they start coming around. They start coming to church. They start listening to preaching. They start taking in what the Bible has to say. They're like, this sounds like it's going to be a good thing. They begin to tell others how great Jesus is, you know. Uh, they, they like church. They like the singing. They like the nice people they've met. They begin to tell people about this and how wonderful it is. And then they realize that Jesus didn't come to make their life on earth easy. He came to deliver them from sin. Now, sin is the reason for most of our problems. Sin is the problem. It is the corruption. It is the defilement. It is what messes us up. Sin is the problem. And so when we get rid of sin, things get better. But whenever people realize He didn't just come to make it better, He came to take away my sin, they get tired of Jesus and they walk 
out on God. This same crowd yelled, crucify, crucify, crucify. This triumphal entry and the events that followed throughout the week, and boy, I'm telling you there's much more here in Mark chapter number 11, things that Jesus did throughout the week. But this entry and the events that followed marked the last week of our Savior's earthly ministry. All of these events were leading up to the final day when he would lay his life down as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. This morning, as we remember his triumphal entry that took place today, we're reminded of his death that takes place in just a few days. In just five days, this man that's being praised will be betrayed. He'll be arrested. He'll be falsely accused. He'll be mocked and made fun of. He'll be spit upon. He'll be beaten. He'll be hung on a cruel cross to suffer, to bleed, and to die. And while he could have delivered himself at any moment, at any moment he could have delivered himself, but yet he willingly, willingly allowed himself to go through that torture by men who hated him. He offered himself up that you and I might find forgiveness through the shedding of his precious blood. He did it for you and I. We sing this song, he did it all for me. He allowed himself to be mocked and beaten as he rode into Jerusalem that day and the people were shouting Hosanna, a glorious day. But I'm sure the Savior's heart was broken because he knew that in just a few days they were going to turn their back on him. But you know what overpowered that broken heart? It was a love for the souls of those people. And he said, although they hate me, I will still lay down my life for them. Although they reject me, I will still allow myself to be crucified for them. I will lay down my life for them. As we think about his crucifixion, I want us to remember the sacrifice by taking part in the Lord's Supper. So we're just going to go right on into the Lord's Supper now. If I could ask the deacons to make their way to the front here and go ahead and uncover the communion elements, we're going to conclude our service by partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now, because the Lord's Supper is a sacred ordinance, there are some requirements that we have in order to participate. I mentioned these last week, and I've had several questions uh, after mentioning them last week, so we'll take just a moment and explain these things. First of all, in order to participate in communion, we ask that you be saved. We ask that you be born again. We ask that there is a time that you have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. There's been a time when the Holy Spirit moved in on the inside of you and you became a new creature, that you have been born again. Not only that, but we also ask that you be scripturally baptized. 
We believe the Bible teaches in baptism by immersion after salvation. So once you've accepted Christ as Savior, you're to be baptized by immersion as a picture that just as Christ died and was buried and rose again, that you have died to your old self. The old man has been buried and you've been raised to walk in newness of life. So we ask that you've been born again. We ask that you've been scripturally baptized. We also ask that you be either a faithful member here at Marlbrook Baptist Church or a faithful member of another church of like faith. So be a faithful member either of Marlbrook or a faithful member of another church of like faith. And why do we ask that? Membership shows commitment. Membership says this is something I'm committed to. This is something I'm a part of. This is something I want to belong to. And so we ask that you have made that commitment, that you're not just an outsider, you're not just watching, but you're someone who have made a commitment. You want to be a part of the church. And then the last thing that we ask, and this is for you to decide. It's not something that we're going to decide. This is a judgment you make of yourself between you and God. And that is that you be in a right relationship with God. And by that I mean that you're not harboring unconfessed sin in your life. I believe when I was talking about this last week, I said that you didn't, I just made the statement and not have any sin in your life. And uh, I've had a couple of folks, you know, say, Pastor John, how, how is that possible? We're not perfect. And so let me explain that a little better. What we're asking is that you're not living in known sin. All of us make mistakes. All of us fail. All of us do things that we regret. But the Bible tells us that if we confess those sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us those sins and cleanse us from that unrighteousness. And as Christians, we keep that confession line open. And boy, we're quick. Whenever we make the mistake, we say a harsh word or, or we do something that we ought not do, that we're quick. Lord, I pray you forgive me of this. Oh, Lord, I ask you forgive me of this sin. Cleanse me of my heart. And whenever there's a sin in our life, we're quick to take care of it. But sometimes there are things that come into our life, habits, lifestyles, that we know are contrary to the Word of God. We know that that's not how God wants us to live. We know that's not how God wants us to behave. And yet we continue to do it anyway. This would be living in sin. This would be harboring an unconfessed sin in your life. And if you're harboring an unconfessed sin, you're living in a way that you know is not pleasing to God, and you are not willing to confess it. Now, you can confess it right here, right now, in your pew. But if it's something that you're not willing to confess, then we ask that you refrain from taking communion. Because when we take communion, we're remembering the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're remembering that his body was beaten and broken and bleeding. Why? Because of our sin. So if I take of communion while at the same time harboring a sin that I am unwilling to confess... Now, I'm not saying that you may not have, have trouble again. I'm not saying that you're going to be perfect. But you are unwilling to confess it. You're unwilling to try to correct it. And you reach and take that communion. It's as if you are the soldier holding the whip. It's as if you are the one who is mocking the sacrifice that he made because you're unwilling to confess that sin. And so... 
This morning we ask that you be born again, that you be scripturally baptized. We ask you be a faithful member either here or at a church of like faith. And then we ask that you search your heart and say, Lord, is there anything that I need to make right with you before I partake of the communion? We're going to go to the Lord in a word of prayer. And then after we pray, we'll begin the communion service. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, as we come to Palm Sunday, Lord, we're entering, Lord, what we remember as the last week of your ministry here on earth. Lord, you did many mighty works. Lord, you healed. Lord, you, you did astounding miracles. But Father, Lord, you forgave the sins of men. And Father, Lord, you come to this last week. And Father, you're preparing to go to the cross. Father, Lord, this morning as we receive this communion, Father, I pray that you will help us, Lord, to be sober-minded. I pray, dear Lord, that you will help us not to be careless. Oh, Lord, that we won't be flippant about this. But, Father, Lord, that as we take the bread, as we drink the wine, Lord, although they're just symbols, Father, Lord, we will remember your body that was broken for us. We will remember your blood that was shed for us. And, Father, Lord, that it will cause us to soberly consider Lord, whether or not we are in a right relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Bless now. And Father, we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.